When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Robots Radio presents. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the podcast. We are back with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode. Today, we are continuing our series that we call Whiskey Talk. This is where we talk with someone who's not necessarily involved in the distilled spirits industry, but someone who has a lot to say to our podcast. And today we're talking with Amy Hollingsworth. Amy is actually an author of five books, uh, including Runaway Radical, A Young Man's Reckless Journey to Save the World, Holy Curiosity, Cultivating the Creative Spirit in Everyday Life, and the book we're going to be talking about today, which is called The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. This is actually a best-selling book that appeared on the Wall Street Journal's bestsellers list and was ranked as Amazon's number one bestseller in Christian inspiration. Amy is a former psychology professor. She's the mother of two grown children who are both writers, and she lives in Virginia with her husband, Jeff. Amy, it is so good to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. I saw an interview that you did uh, with the Huffington Post, and I was just so blown away at how you talked about your relationship that you had with Fred Rogers. And I think it speaks so much to, to where our podcast is right now, because we've seen two pretty major motion pictures come out just in the last couple of years about Mr. Rogers. You know, we have one fiction and one documentary. And to have mm-hmm. someone that had such personal contact with him and who comes from, you know, the media as well. I think it was such a no-brainer to have you on the podcast. So we are so excited to talk to you about the book and about your relationship with Fred Rogers. Thank you. I'm curious to know which you liked better, the documentary or the film, but we'll get into that later. (laughs) Good, good. I can't can't wait. Brad, I think we picked the correct person to bring on the show. 100%. She's already dividing us. Oh, Oh, that's interesting. Okay, okay. So, Amy, I want to get into talking about the book a little bit before we, this devolves into just a screaming match between Brad okay. and I. <laughs> so your book is called The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. And what I really loved about it is that the way you set the book up is to kind of talk about your personal relationship with him, how you developed a correspondence with him that lasted for years until his death. Now, I was wondering if you could just fill our listeners in a little bit on on a little bit of the history of how you got to know Fred Rogers. Well, I, I didn't grow up watching Fred Rogers. I was out of his demographic when his show began to air nationally. So for me, I really got to know him as a teenager through the parodies, the Johnny Carson and Eddie Murphy parodies. That's that's about as much as I knew about him. And then uh, my son was born. I was working in television. And when he turned two, uh, he started watching TV. And that's really how I discovered Mr. Rogers, through his eyes. And he would, you know, for one thing, Fred made him sit still for a half hour a day, which was a miracle in itself. And so I, you know, I started, you know, I want to (laughs) know, how do you do that? So I was really drawn to him as well and felt like I needed that 30 minutes of calm and quiet and peace with Fred. And I, I think especially because of my background in psychology, I realized that he really knew what he was doing. And so 
I was working in television at the time and we had done some programming for children and wanted to extend it. And so I said, oh, let's, why don't we go interview Mr. Rogers? And, I, you know, I, the network that I was working for said, you know, go ahead, good luck. You know, we've tried for 20 years and he's never once consented to give an interview. So, you know, I called his people and I asked for the interview and, you know, no answer. Weeks went by, weeks went by, weeks went by. And I was just reading the newspaper one day, and there was an op-ed piece by Don Fetter, who used to write for the Boston Globe. And it was a review of Fred's book, and it was called, um, the article is called, um, It's a Psycho Babble Day in the Neighborhood. Hmm. So right away, you know, he hated the book, and he hated Mr. Rogers, and it was just this horrible review. So, you know, by this time I had done a lot of homework on Fred Rogers. And so I crafted a letter back to Don Fetter that was very reasonable, you know, telling him why he was wrong. But at the end, I couldn't, you know, I could not say, how dare you, you know, you know. <laughs> so I, I sent the letter off to Don Fetter. I'm, I'm sure he's never read it. So I, I thought, well, Fred's people need to know about this. So I sent the op-ed piece and my letter to Don Fetter to Fred's office. And a couple of days later, I got a phone call that he agreed to the interview. So I was in Pittsburgh like a month later, and it wasn't until I got to Pittsburgh that I discovered that it was that letter that I had written in defense of him that convinced mm. him that I was sincere enough to be trusted. And so I think the basis of a relationship, the trust in a relationship actually developed before we even met face to face. Well, that's such a great story. And, you know, it, it does remind me of a scene in, in the new movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It's a fictionalized version of this author who wrote for Esquire named uh, Tom Junod, and he goes to meet Mr. Rogers for the first time, and, and he has this really kind of cynicism and doubt that Mr. Rogers is who he says he is. He, he asks him, what do you do when you're not playing a character, when you're not being the Mr. Rogers character? And you can kind of see on, on Tom Hanks's face that he's kind of taken aback and a bit hurt by that. Now, I'm wondering, when, when you first got to be face-to-face with Fred Rogers and, and the cameras came on and you were interviewing him, um, what kind of reaction did you have? Did you find him to be as sincere as you expected him to be, or were you expecting something different than you got? Well, I, I wasn't cynical about meeting him. I was fearful because sure. my fear was he's not going to be what he appears to be. That would have been that that was the greater fear for me is that perhaps he's not who I think he is. Um, but no, he was, um, you know, someone who had met him, I think it was a TV guide reporter who had met him said, you know, he's more Mr. Rogers than Mr. Rogers is. And, and it's true. It's true in that one-on-one, he's so deeply personal. I mean, right away, he wanted to know about my husband and he wanted to know about my children who were three and one when I met him. I mean, what a perfect time to meet Mr. Rogers when your kids are, you know, toddlers. So there were a lot of phone calls over the years, you know, for parenting advice and things like that. He's so deeply personal and how he sort of turned, you know, he sort of turns the interview over and starts asking you questions because he's so deeply, he wants to be so deeply personal and so focused on you. And I noticed that one thing that Tom Hanks did in the film that Mr. Rogers didn't do was Tom Hanks barely blinked. I mean, if you watch that film, you're like, why isn't Tom Hanks blinking? And it wasn't, he's not mimicking Fred there. He's trying, I think he just thought, how can I show like this laser-like focus that Fred had on an individual in that moment? I think what he chose to do is not to blink so that he'd show, and I think it communicated that. It communicated that Fred Rogers, when you were in his presence, all he cared about in that moment was you. 
You know, that's such a great point. And and there's this scene that I think it's probably the most talked about scene from the movie. It's the scene in with Tom Hanks and the author and they're in the diner and he tells him to take a minute and think about all the people in his life that you know helped him get to where he is. And this is a thing that I mean, it's been well documented that that Fred did. He actually did it during one of his acceptance speeches when he won a Lifetime Achievement Award. And what the director of this film does, which I love so much, is that she actually allows Tom Hanks to turn and look right down the barrel of the camera and break Mm -hmm. the fourth wall. And he's looking right (laughs) at the audience as they're holding this minute of silence. And you're absolutely right. Tom Hanks does not blink the entire time that the camera is on him for a full minute. And I actually found myself being distracted by like, my gosh, does this man never blink? But, But... I think the effect of it is that he it really does kind of pierce your soul. It gets you to start mm-hmm. being in, introspective and thinking about um, people in your life that you normally don't give a thought to or that you, you feel too busy to give a thought to. And, you know, he, he uh, the second time that I went to interview him, um, he did that. We, we were just talking. So he's looking at me and we're talking about something. And all of a sudden he turns to the camera, to the, our cameraman. And he goes, I wonder if you watching have someone in your, and he does that whole thing that he did in the diner to the yeah. camera. And then, and then, and then he goes, you know, uh, it just take a minute. And then he turns back to me and he goes, well, you know, Amy, I'm so passionate about, and, and I'm like, Oh my goodness. I just lost, he completely I lost him for a minute. You know, yeah. he went somewhere else and he did, he did that thing he did so well, which was just to ask people to give a moment to think about the people who have loved him into being. And it's funny to me when I saw that scene, I was like, wait, he did that with me. He just turns to the camera and does that. And then, and then he comes back to me like nothing has happened, you know? And, and so I think that, you know, he always ended all his commencement speeches and everything. So I, I did think it was brilliant that they put that in the film and brilliant that Tom as Mr. Rogers stares at us, you know, pierces our, Saul, as you said, um, I, that, that was not my favorite scene, but it was, it was one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to me, Amy. It, it feels like, you know, Fred just had this sense that the television was his pulpit, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, where do you think he gained that sense of communication and ability to like pierce into our souls? Well, you know what? It's interesting because you've, I'm sure you've heard this quote and um, it's in the documentary that Morgan Neville did. And, and in some of the um, screen, advanced screeners for the film, they have Joanne Rogers, Fred's wife, also quote something he was famous. And I, what's important to me about this quote is that he filled me in a little bit more on what he meant by that. So the quote is that Fred Rogers felt the space between the television set and the viewer was holy ground. So everybody's hold, has heard that quote. But this is what he said to me, and I think it, it has a nuance of difference, more than a nuance of difference. But he said to me, I'm so convinced that the space between the television set and the viewer is holy ground. And what we put on television can, by the Holy Spirit, be translated into what that person needs to see and hear. And without that translation, it's all dross, as far as I'm concerned. And so he really felt, he really, you know, and then when he went to the studio every day, he said, dear Lord, let some word that is heard be yours. Mm. And so I think that that's... 
in Morgan's film, I think he did a great job of like, this is the psychology of Fred Rogers. But there was something deeper than the psychology of Fred Rogers. And, and that was his faith and his spirituality. And I think because he went into the studio every day with that prayer on his lips, there's stories that have come out of the program. When I went to visit him the first time, he, he was a pen pal with this 19-year-old young man who had been horribly abused as a child. Um, he, he, was, he didn't have a bed to sleep in. He didn't have a blanket in the winter. And he, he started watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And little by little, he realized that his life could be different. And he called an abuse hotline. His parents were both arrested and put in jail. And the person who answered his call at the abuse hotline adopted him. Oh, my gosh. So so I was so Fred's telling me the story. And I'm like, well, you know, he said the neighborhood helped him. I said, well, how did watching Mr. Rogers neighborhood help him? And Fred said it gave him hope. He never knew there were such kind people in the world until he started watching the neighborhood. And he realized if that can happen there, then that can happen in my life. And that's what gave him the courage to finally call an abuse hotline. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about the depth of of Fred's faith. And, you know, that's kind of the, the title of your book is, you know, The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. And I was looking through the table of contents and two things kind of stuck out to me. First off was the toe sticks. And I'm kind of curious to hear what you mean by the toe sticks. But secondly, it seems like each chapter is broken down by something that characterized Fred's faith. And I'm really interested in hearing, you know, which part of that really has impacted you the most. Well, the um, I think with the toe sticks is comes from a story in his childhood that he told me the summer before he passed away. And so I use that as sort of an imagery. And if we have time, I will go into it. But um, I think the thing, one of the things that when we, when Fred and I, in fact, it was the first question that I asked him, um, he was filming a series of programs on fast and slow. And I had already decided to ask him, you know, what is it about, what is it about you and the program that, it seems like there's a lot of focus on slowing down and, you know, going slow and being quiet and everything. And he said, um, you know, as for me, I need to be myself. And then, of course, he paused. <laughs> and then he said, you know, I've never been a hyperactive, runaround kind of person. And, you know, he's sitting across from me, who, and I am a hyperactive, runaround kind of person. So this is like the first thing out of his mouth. You know, he's drawing this line between our personalities. And he said, I've never been a hyperactive, runaround kind of person. And I always have felt like the best gift you can give a person is one more honest adult in that person's life. And he said, so... So for me, I need to be myself and being quiet and slow is being myself. And that's my gift. And I think if I've learned anything from him is that being quiet and slow is a better way than being a hyperactive runaround kind of person. And over the years, in fact, you know, I met him 25 years ago and he's been gone for 15 years. So you know, I, I wish he could see how different I am and how the impact of the lessons that he taught me, the, the, you know, the letters, the phone calls, all those things 
have borne fruit in a way that I'm much quieter and much slower than I was when we first met. And and just taking time for quiet. Like when I travel now, and I've done this since he passed away, I never have the radio or the television on when I travel. Like if I'm staying at a hotel or whatever, I do that because I want him to know that I've learned the importance of silence. And so in homage to him, when I travel, I don't have any noise when I can you know, when I can avoid it. And so I think that's probably has been my biggest takeaway from my friendship with him. I think the thing that really stuck out to me, Amy, as I as I read some of your interviews and then got into reading the book, the very first chapter is about taking it slow. And that was the one that stuck with me the most as well. I, I just I mean, I work two jobs doing the podcast. I have a toddler and one on the way. And oh, gosh. I, yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I really, yeah. So, I mean, that really speaks to me. And even if it's just in, in finding those quiet moments throughout the day, it's not just that Fred was encouraging us to be quiet and to and to be still, but it's to use those moments to do something with the quiet and the stillness. It, it wasn't just you need to cut off and be silent. I love that he always kind of geared it back towards being reflective and and thinking about, you know, what what has me in this position that I'm in today? What's gotten me to where I am? And it really reflects this sort of uh, gratitude that you saw in him at all times. And I, I've always been fascinated by that. Yeah, and that's that's really it wasn't just he thought being quiet was the better way in in and of itself. There was there was something underlying that and he did feel that silence leads to reflection and that reflection leads to appreciation and then appreciation looks around for someone to thank. And so I think that that's the thing that 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 he felt like if people really were quiet and thought about things, they would be much more grateful, much more appreciative. And it's interesting because people have asked me, they've said, you know, how, how do you account for his laser, laser focus on people? And even with Lloyd in the film, he says in their first phone call, I think it's their first phone call where he says, you know, who the most, what the most important thing to me is right now, it's talking to you. And I've heard him say that he said that to me, he said that to other people. And and people have said, well, you know, how did he get that laser focus on people when he was with you? And I think it's all the time, which sounds like a contradiction. It's all the time he spent by himself. I think all the time alone and learning how to pay attention, um, learning how to be grateful, learning how to be reflective. When he spent all that time alone and then when he was in the presence of other people, he really knew how to pay attention to that other person and not let all the distractions that we let distract us all the time um, get in the way. And so I, I think that that's the part that, um, that's the part of our relationship. I think that probably has borne the most fruit in my life because, um, I've, I have hit brick walls as you may (laughs) with your two full-time jobs (laughs) and your toddler. So I've been in those kind of situations and they're not tenable. (laughs) Spoiler alert, they're not tenable. So you do hit brick walls. And so I've had to learn over the years when I've come to those places and he was alive for one of them, you know, when I got into one jam and not when I was in the other. But I I think he really gave me everything I needed to get through those difficult times by establishing ways in our everyday life to build in times where we reflect and we're more grateful and where we just have no noise at all. So, Amy, I want to segue a little bit into talking about the two films. And, you know, we could only hold off arguing for so long 
Brad and I. <laughs> so um, I did want to ask, did you have any sort of role in, in developing either of these films as a, as a consultant and in giving any sort of input? You know, I did. They did. They were so gracious to give me a film credit on the, the documentary. Um, and I think it's because they I, I was contacted about 18 months before the film came out. And I know that um, what I was told by one of the producers is they read The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers and used that to make some decisions about how they were going to explore certain things. Mm. Um, so which it, which is really an extraordinary thing. Um, uh, and the the second film, I was only involved in promoting it and sort of translating it for um, for the faith audience, you know, I, so I, I did some things, I did some promotional things to, for the film, um, but wasn't in any way, except that the, you know, the plot is basically my life, you know, a dysfunctional journalist meets Fred Rogers and his life gets turned upside down. I was like, wait, that sounds strangely familiar. That's what happened to me. So, (laughs) Yeah, and I'm I'm interested, you know, watching the film with Hanks in it that obviously is historical fiction of sorts, if you will. I'm curious, what do you think that Hanks got most right? But also, you know, it seems like Fred Rogers was the kind of person that no actor could fully imitate or become. You know, so while Hanks, I'm sure, got a lot of things right in that film, what do you think there what do you think there is about Fred that no actor could truly emulate? Well, you know, part of my issue with even having having Fred depicted by an actor is that the quote I said earlier about, you know, the best gift you could give another person is the gift of your honest self. And so to have that person, to have then that degree of separation between that honest person, you know, through an actor, it's, you know, it, it's it's difficult, I think. And so I, I had some concerns about the film, but I think what Tom Hanks did is he didn't try to mimic or impersonate Fred, but he did exude him. Uh, somehow he found ways to make it feel, at least I felt after I finished the film, and I watched it, the screener link a couple times, and then I went to Pittsburgh for the premiere. I just felt like I had spent those two hours with Fred Rogers. And mm-hmm. so, and, and I told the screenwriters, I said, I'm not sure how you were able to do this, but Mr. Rogers was in every frame of that film, even when Tom Hanks was not on screen. That's how I felt. And so I felt like however they were able to do that magic, they were able to, through the music, through, I mean, even the, you know, it was like, it's like the film is thoroughly him. It's, it's thoroughly his spirit and it's thoroughly his unique brand of creativity. I mean, even that trippy fugue state, dream state sequence, that's yeah, like, right. that's some, that's what Fred Rogers would have done, you know? And so everything about it so honored him down to the last detail. Mm-hmm. And so, and the other thing too, is my favorite scene in the film is when, um, Tom Hanks is in his black puppeteer shirt and he's, he's, he's doing the, uh, Daniel Stripe a tiger and he's engaging with Lady Aberlin and then they sing, you know, what do you do with the mad that you feel? Yeah. And for whatever reason, I, when I watched that, I started crying and then I rewound it and then I watched it again and I'm crying and crying. I was like, I don't know why, but for some reason in that scene, that's, that's where I felt felt Fred Rogers the most. And then one of the um, 
one of my contacts at Sony said, oh, because I told him that's the scene that made me cry. And he said, you do know that the director tricked Tom Hanks. I mean, he knew he was going to be in the scene, but he didn't know he was going to be the focus. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the fact that Tom Hanks was just wasn't acting at that point. He was just being authentic. That's probably why to me, when I saw that scene, I was like, you know, what is, what is most Fred Rogers is authenticity. And I think Tom Hanks in that moment of trying so hard (laughs) to be the puppet and not acting, but just trying hard and being authentic, not even knowing he's the center, you know, the focal point of that scene. I think that came across. And so I think he did that you know, brilliantly and, and absolutely deserves the, the nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Man, Amy, I just love what you're saying about authenticity. And I think it's interesting that, you know, your book came out in 2007. You know, now it's it's 2020. And we're seeing this, this sort of Fred Rogers renaissance where, like, mm-hmm. he's been brought back into the public eye. And honestly, I think that your comments on authenticity have something to do with it. Do you think that there's something about this current culture that needs Fred Rogers more now than ever before? I, I do think that. I do think that. And 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 not just the you know not just the culture and the lack of civility, um, but just the the violence in our culture. And you know the thing the it, this is really interesting. The um, of course it. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was not broadcast in other countries. I think Korea and Russia had like pirated tapes or something, because I know my book has been um, translated into Korean. But the the Sunday Times, um, which is a, a British magazine, contacted me and they're like, okay, we don't know who Mr. Rogers is, right? But this film is coming because we all love Tom Hanks. So how do you explain <laughs> the popularity, the impact of this man so many years after his death to people who aren't familiar with him, which that's asking a lot. Like that's really, that's a difficult thing to distill for somebody who's never seen Mr. Rogers neighborhood. And what I said was that, um, so for the American culture, what Fred Rogers did is that he gave children and their parents permission to feel you know, permission to have feelings. And there's even that line in the film that says, you know, whatever is mentionable is manageable. And, and so, but he didn't put like a value judgment on feelings. They they weren't good or bad, but they could be overwhelming. And a child had asked him one time, well, what do you do with a mad that you feel? And so, as you know, Fred wrote an entire song, you know, what do you do with a mad that you feel? And so I think that, I, I think that, what he wanted the most was to give children ways to express their anger that didn't hurt them or anyone else. And so you nowadays, you only have to watch the nightly news in America to see that we need both of those things. We still need the acknowledgement that emotions can be overpowering, and we still need nonviolent ways to express those emotions. So that's why we still need Mr. Rogers, because we still need those two things. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that that is just kind of ironic in, in a really funny way to me is for so long, Fred had to kind of fight to carve out his space on television. The 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 hearings for public television, I think it was in 68 or 69, are, are so famous now. And we've seen the clips in the documentary. But he was doing something so radically different that 
I think for a long time, people felt like he didn't really belong on television and he had to fight an uphill battle to be there. And what's so funny is that now we're seeing Fred kind of make the leap to Hollywood, which is a place <laughs> where where you would never expect him to be because Hollywood studios don't make anything that they don't think is going to be profitable. And I think what's what's so funny to me is that he fought and fought and fought to carve out a spot on television. And now, 15 years after his death, what we're seeing is that audiences are really gravitating towards this sort of gentle, quiet, reflective uh, philosophy that he carried with him. Mm-hmm. I think I think so, and I think you know I, I heard somebody say, "Why don't we just um, instead of having a Hollywood film about Fred Rogers, why don't we all just go into a movie theater for a couple hours and watch old Mister Rogers Neighborhood episodes?" So I think people, you know, and I when I was writing the Simple Faith of Mister Rogers, I watched every day, and you wouldn't believe how many times that I was stuck or was filled with doubt or whatever, or just trying to do what you're doing with children and jobs and everything. Everything. And that he would say something or sing a song and I would and it would be so encouraging to me. It would be so personally encouraging to me. And so I think people really want that. They still want um, they, they 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 want that assurance, you know, that they're special or that it's OK to be angry or there are ways to be angry, angry that, you know, after the Parkland shooting, I wrote an article about, you know, wanting to call Fred on the phone and say, what are we going to do about all this? You know, and, and, and I, and I couldn't do that, of course, because he was gone. So I went through our interviews together and we're watching them. And I wrote an article about, you know, what I learned from him all these years later, just by looking at our, our original source tapes and some, some prison group called and said, you know, can we put this article in our newsletter for the prisoners? Because they need to know healthy ways to deal with their anger or they wouldn't be in prison. And it was like, it's just sort of extraordinary to me that all these years later, Mr. Rogers would be helping inmates, you know, prisoners to deal with their anger. Cause I think that Fred felt like if you could get children at the youngest age to understand that there are ways to express how they feel, then we wouldn't even need prisons. Wow. Well, Amy, uh, we're going to we're going to kind of wind down here. And I so appreciate you going so deep with us on on talking about your relationship with Fred and how he's been represented in these movies. We're timing the release of this episode uh, with the release of the DVD for the Tom Hanks film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And I ha- I have to know now because you pitted Brad and I against each other at the beginning <laughs> of this. Wh- which one is your uh, preferred film and why would you argue for that one? Oh, you know, you're going to put me in a bad spot. No, um, I, you know, I loved both of them for different reasons. I really did. And and I think that, um, you know, people who love Hank, Tom Hanks but may not have cared very much for Mr. Rogers discovered Fred Rogers anew. And so I think that's I think that's really important. And I will say I thought that um, the director and the filmmakers and the screenwriters, they just did a phenomenal job. I mean, they when I told them what I said about, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers, being in every frame, they said, well, we just really wanted to capture a spirit more than anything. And they were able to do that. It's phenomenal. I I think when you really look at the film and every way that Fred is present in that film, I think it's near miraculous. I really do. And I also love the documentary because, you know, it was Fred Rogers and we got to learn a little bit more about what made him tick and the psychology of him. And they painted him as the complex person that he was. And so I think both both are, are were really well done and 
added to the Mr. Rogersance, <laughs> the Rogers Renaissance. And mm. so I think in that way, they, they were, they were, I loved them both. Well, Amy, we are so, so thankful that Film and Whiskey was able to take a little part of the Mr. Rogers Renaissance. I think that all of the lessons that we talked about today, the lessons of authenticity, of silence, of caring for yourself so that you can care for others, they are so necessary in today's society, in today's culture. And man, I am just so thankful that you were willing to come on the podcast with us. Well, thank you for having me, but I didn't get any whiskey. I just want you to know. Oh, I know. I know. I, I will put Bob on that. He will send you some here soon. I thought there might be some sort of weird dissonance thought, between you, talking you about bread and drinking whiskey. Well, and he didn't. I, I, I'm teasing. Of course, I know nothing about whiskey, but I and Fred didn't drink at all. I, you guys probably knew that. But I just I wanted to listen to your podcast and see if you guys sound different at the beginning or at, at the at the end as you as you went on. So I did that. But you guys were just clear spoken and everything. So I was hoping for, you know, <laughs> a little more drama by the end of the podcast. But uh, but I think it's it's a wonderful pairing. And so uh Thank you for having me. Film and Whiskey Nation, we are so thankful that you could join us for this episode. If you have any thoughts about the movies, you know, the the Tom Hanks film or the documentary, give us a call. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, the number is 216-800-5923. Bob, can they find us on social media? Oh, they certainly can. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Whiskey. And if you'd like to check out Amy's book, it is available from every major bookseller, including Amazon. It's called The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. Amy Hollingsworth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time.